What is being rich? How do you answer that question? What is being rich to you? I don't suspect we'd all answer it the same way, so we'll look at that today. As we try to answer this question, it tells us a great deal about how we see the world, how we think through the world. I think even the generation that we were born into, how we answer this question, of course, depends on what our currency of choice is. And it seems to me how we answer that question has greatly been altered by the invent of the airplane, the credit card, student loans, digital photography, the smartphone, Facebook, Instagram, and the whole social media revolution has changed the way we answer these questions. What does it mean to be rich? So I'd like you to consider that question with me. What currency do you trade in? And this question, who do you identify as the rich amongst you? Okay. Now I want to just say this at the outset. We'll ask some tough questions of ourselves today. But I want you to know that basically I wrote this sermon to 23-year-old Dave Evanger. Ten years ago. I wrote this sermon to me ten years ago. So you may or may not hear yourself in my story, but I want you to know I'm speaking to myself, okay? I'm not speaking to you. I hope maybe you find some threads that connect with your story, but I'm speaking to 23-year-old Dave. I was just out of college. I had my master's degree, a very nice job with a very nice salary. I had my health and my youth. You should have seen my hair. It was terrific. I had great hair back then. Still got, I mean, doing all right. Had all of that. And you know what I didn't have? Responsibility, dependence. It was great. I had abundance of time and energy, and I had great credit. I'd get any credit card I wanted. So, what am I going to say to 23 year old Dave? You'll have to wait and see. <laughs> We'll also ask some tough questions tonight about life after death. Is that even a real thing? And if so, what does it mean for life right now? If heaven is a reality, do our Instagram posts live on there? Some of you are hoping, God, no. <laughs> I sure hope it doesn't. That would be terrible. Don't worry, I've already looked through all of your Instagram posts, so deleting them is not going to work. No, I haven't done that. That's what I have Laura for. Thanks, Laura. So then the other thing we have to ask ourselves is the question about, well, what about Jesus? How does he play into all of this? We're studying the parables because there's no better place to go to figure out how do we live this life than to the words of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. For those of you who call yourself Christian, so what is the picture of, of a life lived to perfection that Jesus portrays for us? Because if, if, if he's lived the perfect life, then truly he must be rich. So what, what picture does he paint for us of what a rich person looks like? And, and if you know anything about Jesus, what, what you'll know is that he didn't have much cash. He didn't have much cash at all. He was a blue-collar carpenter. 
for most of his life until he was about 30 years old, and then he went and started his public ministry, and he, he basically just went from town to town on something of a walkabout around Palestine, staying in Airbnbs wherever he went. And then he went to the cross when he was 36. He, yeah, what is going on? Okay, I'm hoping that's rain. <laughs> Could be the end, guys. <laughs> if anybody needs to come pray with me, now's the time. Here we go. <laughs> okay. Didn't have much cash, but you know the other thing he didn't have? He didn't have much experience as a world traveler. Let me give you some perspective here. In Jesus' life, the extent to which he traveled was this. It's like he was born in western Washington, okay? And he never went further east than the Cascades, which are that way. You know the Cascades Mountains? And he never went further west than the Puget Sound, okay? Now, he did most of his traveling north and south. How far north did he go? The furthest he went would have been Whistler, Canada. This is, of course, with Seattle, Actually, more like Tacoma, actually no, more like SeaTac being the furthest south. SeaTac to Whistler. The Cascades to the Puget Sound. So Jesus was like a man, if Seattle were Jerusalem, Jesus was born in Tukwila. I did all the math on this with the actual mileage from Seattle. Born in Tukwila, grew up in Cedro Woolley, that's near Mount Vernon, for those of you who don't know. He spent most of his public ministry in Bellingham. Can I get a what what from my Western folks? All right. <laughs> They've been saying that for years. Jesus went to Western. <laughs> most of his public ministry in Bellingham. Now, I wouldn't call that a world traveler. But yet, here's our picture of the richest man that ever lived. But you know what he did? He invested heavily in something. People. Relationships. And it changed the world. So let's go ahead and read our parable. Luke chapter 12. We'll go through it. See what is he trying to tell us about what it means to be rich. Start with me in Luke chapter 12, verse 13. It says this, Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Okay, i got to give us a little bit of context. You know I like to do that. A little bit of context about what's going on here because this guy brings up this question about cash. I need to get some of the cash that my older brother got in the inheritance. Jesus, help me. So let's get some context and to see how truly ironic this question is. So start at the beginning of chapter 12 as we look at our context. I'm going to read this pretty quick, so read with me. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he, that's Jesus, began to say to his disciples, 
Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the, in the light, and what you have whispered in the private room shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that, nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And are not one of them, or, and sorry, and not one of them is forgotten by God. Why, when, uh, when the hairs of your head are all numbered, fear not you. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And he went on. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men the Son of Man will also acknowledge before angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about what you shall say to defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in the very hour what you ought to say. And then out of the crowd of thousands, somebody screams and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You see how crazy this question is? When he's just told him, he's speaking about life and death and after death and heaven and hell. And this guy comes in and says, help me get part of my inheritance. Help me get that cash money. That is a crazy question to ask. And look what Jesus says, verse 14. But Jesus said to him, man, man, no woman would have asked this, by the way. <laughs> They're too smart. Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus basically says, dude, I don't care about your cash. He disregards his request as completely unimportant to him. That's not my job. I'm not here. I'm not like all those other religious people that you know in your life who are trying to get their power by being judges over you about your money and your inheritance. I don't care about that. Guard yourself against covetousness. Verse 15. And he said to them, I already read that. <laughs> Verse 15, I'm going to read it again. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This is like one important bracketed statement that will help us to understand the parable. So let's get into verse 16. And Jesus told them a parable, saying this, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. 
often it's not only what somebody says, it's also what they do not say. And what does this man not say? Notice what he does not say. He does not say anything about working extra hard or having some clever idea or building some new technology or some great strategy. The only thing that happened was he had a plentiful harvest like none he had ever seen. And he didn't do anything <laughs> to deserve it. All, of, all it says is what? The land produced plentifully. Now, if you had Jewish ears in the first century, if you heard that, you know that the land is God's. And every harvest that is good is from the Lord. And so you would hear that and you'd say, obviously this man is being blessed by God. This is a miracle that his land has produced so plentifully. But the man doesn't say anything about that. He doesn't say, thank God. He's just like, this is great. I have an abundance He doesn't even recognize the miracle. But what does he do? Five times he uses the personal uh, pronoun my, and six times he uses I. (laughs) He's pretty self-absorbed, isn't he? My crop, I'll do this. My barns, I'll tear them down. I'll build new ones. This guy's got it coming for him. Verse 17. And he thought to himself, this is the farmer, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. He never once thinks of an alternative option besides keeping everything that God has given to him. If you were a good, God-fearing Jew. What you would have expected this man to do, what the Old Testament law would have required of him, is that anything that he reaped beyond what he needed was to go to the whole community around him. That was what God had taught the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Any excess quantity was to be a blessing for the whole community, not just for the farmer himself, to feed the hungry. He could have sold the goods and bought clothing for those who had no clothing. He could have sold it and given alms to the poor, but instead he says, I think I'll build some bigger barns so that I can store it all. One of the commentators I read this week, and I love this line, if you're taking notes, write this down. This parable is a perfect example of how to mismanage a miracle. When God gives us an abundance, it is a miracle. And who is the miracle for? Is it for me? No, it's for God's mission to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to give alms to the poor. But how do we define abundance here? We'll get back to this a little bit later. Stick with me. We'll get back to this because this is a key question. How do I know if I have an abundance? I don't have barns. I'm not a farmer. How do I know if I have an abundance? Hang with me. We'll get there. Verse 19 says this. 
The farmer says, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. (laughs) See what he's doing here? Jesus, remember where else he said soul? He said it right before he told the parable, before the question was asked about, can I get my cash? He says, fear the one who can kill both body and soul. He says to his soul, (laughs) I've got ample goods. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. But you know what he leaves out? For those acute Bible scholars, he's saying the first half of the great, well-known proverb of Ecclesiastes, and it's it's a... um, It's not a proverb of truth, it's a proverb of foolishness, which says this, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You may have heard this in a popular song, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, but ironically, he does not say the second half of the well-known, and you've got to understand, the Jews would have known, he's only said the first half. Look at verse 20, how ironic it is, but God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You see the irony there? You forgot the second half of the verse. For tomorrow you die, and in fact, before tomorrow even comes, your soul will be demanded of you, meaning you will be dead. Nobody's promised you 80 years or 90 years. No one's promised you a day. Why do you think you'll have all this time to eat, drink, and be merry? Do you not forget, for tomorrow we die? Let's read verse 21 again. So is the one, that's the same as saying everyone, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. What does it mean to be rich towards God? What the heck does that mean? Well, it's not just some of us who need to hear this, it's all of us that need to hear this, but to be rich towards God means storing up your treasures in God's Heavenly barns, not your own. (laughs) God's got barns, metaphorical barns. (laughs) I don't think they're real barns. But he's got storage, and he wants you to store up your treasures with him. So the question is, what goes in God's barns? But first we'd have to ask, what certainly doesn't go in his barns? I don't think there's going to be any grain in God's barn. I don't think there's going to be gold or silver. There's going to be no cash at all. No physical things, because what? God can create on demand anything that he wants to create. He did it in creation. And then God spoke and created. Creation out of nothing. So he doesn't need to store that stuff up because he'll just create it on demand. So there's none of that in there. So what in the world are in God's uh, barns and how do we store up treasures there? So to figure out what somebody might put in a barn, we've got to ask, what is the story of God? 
What does he care most about? What does he value above anything? And when we look at the story of God again and again and again, we see there's one thing that he values above all else, and he'd do anything to gain it. He would spare no expense to get it. He would go as far as humanly possible to make it happen, and we know that because he came himself to earth in the form of his son Jesus, and he lived the life that we could not live, and he died the death that we should have died for our sin, and he took on himself on the cross the wrath of God against all unrighteousness, and he did it all for one thing, relationship. That's what God values above everything else, and the gospel proves it. He'll do anything to make possible relationship between God and man. And we talked about last week, that is grace-based relationship. So it's grace-based relationship that God cares about above anything else. And I believe that is what's sitting in the barns in heaven, God's barns. So to store up treasures is to store up grace-based relationships. Now what do I mean by grace-based relationships? Well, first, I believe it's our relationship with God, which, of course, is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Am I rich towards that relationship with God? Do I give God time? Do I even maybe spend money? Do I use my creative energy to know God better and to be acquainted with Him? Am I rich towards God? Like, I was very convicted this week because I realized the perfect analogy towards this is, of course, my relationship with my wife. And if somebody asked me, are you rich towards your relationship with your wife, I'd know exactly what they were saying. Do I spend time? Do I invest money, my creative energy, in loving her and knowing her? And I don't always do that well. Are you rich in your relationship with God? It's also referring, I think, to our relationships with others because God gets into relationship with us by grace so that we can go start grace-based relationships with others. Do you have any grace-based relationships with others? Or are all your relationships contingent? Are they contractual? See, a grace-based relationship doesn't mean I'll be your friend as long as it's beneficial to me. And as soon as you sell your boat, I just got real busy. <laughs> My Saturday's filled up. <laughs> I'm sorry. Can't, can't come over anymore on Saturdays. Just let me know when you get that boat back, though. I'd love to just make sure it's working right. But in all honesty, are our relationships contingent? Or do we just care about people and love people and invest time and energy and money in people just because we love them? That's a grace-based relationship. And the great thing about storing up your treasures in grace-based relationships is they don't grow old. They don't go away. They're the only thing that transfers from this life into the life to come. I used to always say this to my good friend, Drew Krieger. He was a great friend from Denver, Colorado. And when God called Allie and I back to Seattle, one of the main reasons we did not want to go besides the 260-day sun differential was Drew Krieger. I loved Drew Krieger. I loved him like a brother. He and I had a grace-based relationship. But you know what I always said to Drew? I said, Drew, don't worry about it. I'm going to miss living in the same city with you and spending time with you. 
and reading Russian authors with you. But you know what? It's going to be a snap of the finger when we're sitting in eternity exploring the glory of God. We're not even going to remember that we lived in different cities. It is going to be an eternity filled with our friendship, and I'm so excited about that because nothing can destroy that. Nothing can take that away. No thief can steal. No moth can destroy my relationship with Drew Krieger because it's based on grace. When God is generous with you, are you generous with the abundance that he's given to you? Because if you are, it can and always will manifest itself in new and fuller relationships. I guarantee it. Whatever he has given you abundance of, if you just give it away and let it overflow, it will create treasures that last in eternity. So as we see this parable, we also see that the opposite of generosity can consume us, and probably we don't even see it, and it's a little word we call greed. And in the story of the rich man who is himself a farmer, he stands for all humans, all humans seduced by every form of greed for every possession that exists, whether you're a peasant or a statesman, a craftsman or a lawyer, a nurse or a doctor, a secretary or a professor. If you don't understand that greed is a part of your life, then you're probably even more greedy than you think. So I started to think, what is the greed and what does it look like in our society today, in our community today, and even amongst our church today? And I thought, well, the first thing we see is, of course, like the Trumps of the world, you know, uh, just they pad their portfolios with more and more money, investments, and property, and the old slogan is true as it ever was, the rich get richer in our world. Then I thought of our parents and our grandparents' generation, and they worked hard and stored up investment, and they put them in accounts in order to have a good, long, comfortable retirement. That was sort of the way uh, they operated. And then I thought of us, and when I say us, I'm talking of those of us in our 20s and our 30s. And I think we see the world slightly differently. Part of it is because we have uh, not been financially successful, and part of it is just because our world is changing. But what is it for us, in our generation, that sort of we get greedy for? What do we get greedy for? Remember, I wrote this sermon to 23-year-old Dave, Eve Anger, Okay? And as I considered these questions in my own life, as my own, as I sort of did an accounting of my own greed over the years, I found this to be very true, what I'm about to say about what I tend to be greedy for. So this is my story. I realize it might not be your story, so don't, I'm not painting everybody with a brush. But you may, some of you may relate. When I was 23 years old, this, was, this is what I was greedy for. Memorable experiences. My greed was for memorable experience, and it drove my heart. It drove my heart. You could say it was the king of my heart. I listened to that. Is it a memorable experience? I'm in. I don't care what it costs. I'm in. 
This is how I viewed what it meant to be rich. Who is having the most memorable experiences? And here's how I wanted my experiences, which were my currency. Here's how I wanted them. This is just how I like, you know, like you go to the bank, do you like to get your cash in 20s or do you like to get it in 100s? I like to get my cash in $5 bills. I wanted lots of quantity and lots of variety. So I guess not all $5 bills, but see what I'm saying. I wanted lots of quantity and lots of variety. So this is how it would play out, right? Like if I would travel to Europe or, or whatnot, I was more concerned with seeing as many cities in as many different countries and cultures as I could in the time I had. Now some people will go and they, will, they want to get deep into one place or one country or one city and see many uh, cities in that country. Not me. I wanted to get a variety and I wanted a quantity. I wanted to get them notches in my belt of all the experiences that I had. And so this week I sat down and I thought of all the things that I've done in my life. And I'm only 33 years old. And then I thought of my grandma. And I was a little ashamed at all the things I've done. Let me just recount them for you so you can get an idea that this was me, and, and it is me, it's still me. I've been to Hawaii seven times. I've been to Mexico four times. I've been on two cruises. I've been to the Netherlands once, Switzerland once, Italy once, Germany twice, France twice, the Caribbean, Florida seven times, New York City three times. I've been on two California road trips and at least ten, probably more times, through air. I've skied at 11 of the world's finest ski resorts in Utah, Colorado, and Canada, and I didn't even start skiing until I was 28 years old. I've been to Las Vegas four times, New Orleans twice. What's up, Mark Lawrence? Arizona at least 10 times. And I counted up how many of the 50 states that I've had meaningful memories from, 34. And as I thought about this, I thought, oh my gosh, I've been storing up in my barns experiences. And I treat them like they're going out of style, like it's limited edition, like they're on the brink of extinction. I've got to get them all. And this especially when I was in my, my 20s, I was doing this. Like they were going away. My currency was memorable experience, and by all accounts, I was rich. So I, if, if you're on our Facebook group, I, I, I sent you, a, I posted a commercial. I said, watch this. You may have seen this. You might recognize it as I, I talk about it. It's for American Express commercial. And I'll just kind of narrate the commercial. It's something like this. Uh, there's a 24-hour layover in Iceland, and there's this well-known uh, photographer. I think you say her name, uh, Pei Ketron. And uh, she's exploring waterfalls and going to restaurants and while she's in Iceland, she posts pictures of herself adventuring on Instagram. And this is kind of part of her job. And Pei, uh, she has fish for lunch and takes a picture of that. And she sees some glass buildings before she leaves. She makes sure not to forget to buy an itchy Icelandic sweater as a souvenir. And the whole time she uses her American Express Premier Gold card on her trip and earns triple points for airfare as well as avoids paying foreign transaction fees. We're hoping that American Express just contributes a little bit to our church. So that's my plug right there. And the tagline is, the journey never stops, which is why it's so important you get triple points for your airfare. And ever since I first saw this commercial, have you seen this commercial? 
I think it's been on uh, for several months. It always bothered me, and I, I was so averse to it, but I was trying to figure out why does this bother me so much, and I think I figured out why it bothers me so much. The first reason is that I see myself. I see myself. I see myself. And I think that actually looks really fun. I would not mind doing that. I would love to be a pinball and go, just enough to get a picture here, just enough to get a picture, just about, get a souvenir, and I'm done. That's me. And the other thing I realize why I hate that so much is that the whole time she's alone. She's all by herself. There's these majestic moments and scenery, and she's bouncing from one to the other, but she's all alone. It's just her and her camera. And I'm like, is that really the good life? Is that what I want? And the problem is, 23-year-old Dave would have said, oh yeah, I actually don't mind being alone. I can be more efficient. I can get to more places. Check them off my list. And so it bothers me because I see myself. So this life I was living didn't match up with this, these ideas that I've heard of, of storing up my treasure in heaven and investing in relationships above all else. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, many of my experiences came before the advent of really good smartphones with really good cameras and even before Instagram. So most of my memorable experiences are stored up right here in the barns of my mind. <laughs> it's not in a cloud server somewhere. But you know what? If I did have a really good camera phone, I would have taken really good pictures and I would have exposed them for the world to see my riches. I would have. I wanted people to know that I was living the rich life. I wanted them to see how wealthy I was with my experience. Now for many of us, our social media can be like a really nice Gucci handbag or men's carry-all. Nothing wrong with that. We can use it. It, 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 it. We want people to see our wealth. And our currency is experience. So here's the important question. What is driving this mentality in 23-year-old Dave? What is driving these pursuits for experience above all else? And is there anything malfunctioning in my motivation? Maybe there's not. But here's, as I thought about it, what I kind of uh, drilled down to. This is why I think I wanted that more than anything. And I, I don't think I'm alone in this. I think many people around the world, Christian, non-Christian, not yet Christian, they think this way. Here's what was in my subconscious. I had a fear. I had a real fear. in my. I don't think I, I was conscious of it, but I had a subconscious fear that this life is as good as it gets. So many people, including myself, believe the lie that you get one shot at life and so you better get as much out of it as you can. You get one shot. Get as much out of it as you can. So we're convinced that this life is as good as it gets and we especially think when we're in our 20s and our 30s, the lie sort of you know, there's this little caveat attached to the lie that this is as good as it gets, this life. The caveat is this, especially when you're young and you have freedom 
from responsibility, because that's going away soon, take advantage of it right now. So to be fair to 23-year-old Dave, I made a lot of sense in my head. I was working on this assumption, subconscious or conscious, and, and, and of course I'm perfectly logical that if it's true that you get one life and it's your best shot, then storing up as many experiences and memories, quantity and variety for me, as possible makes sense in a hope that it will carry me through into my old age as with nostalgic lenses I look back on all that I, I accomplished, all the experiences that I had. As my body sort of fails me um, and, and, and it yields less and less of these memorable moments, I can look back at my barn houses and see all that I did. It was a good, you see that? It was a good life. That's how I was operating. It was a fear that this life is good as it gets. Of course, I've been, uh, I've been told that it isn't, right? Because what's the problem with this mentality? This book is the problem with this mentality because again and again and again, the story of Scripture, the constant, constant affirmation of God is that this life is not as good as it gets. This life is in no way close to as good as it gets. The best is yet to come. And I'd heard it, I'd grown up in the church, and I was a Christian, but I didn't really believe it. I was hedging my bets because I kind of believed that it got better, but you know what? What if it didn't? I better get in my jollies. I want to get to the end and be upset that I didn't live life to the full. And I was struck by this this week. Grayson has a kid's book called God Gave Us Heaven. And I was just reading in it. It was the simplest of truths. You know everything you like? Polar bear. <laughs> yes, I like this and this and this. Well, heaven's like way more of that. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's pretty simple and true. How could I have forgotten it? The problem is I wasn't trusting when God just told me flat out. Life with him is better. Life with him is as good as it gets. 23-year-old Dave would have said the right things, but his decisions and his pursuits gave a very different response. I gave a very different response with the life I lived and the things I invested in. If eternal life is real, and it's with God, and Jesus died that we might have it, then why do I act as if time is running out, and my chance to marvel at the works of God is limited? Do you suppose that we'll be sitting around in heaven with nothing to do, reminiscing of the glory days back on earth? Can you just picture that for a second? <laughs> Do you remember that time? <laughs> oh, that was sick. <laughs> Hell no. And I'm not being clever. There's two categories of people. Only two. There's those who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And this life is actually as good as as it gets, and it should terrify us. Because the second category of people, those who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, trust in his promises for life everlasting, 
This life is actually as bad as it gets. It gets no worse. Only better. When I was 24 years old, my eyes were opened to fully understanding the goodness of God, to fully understanding His grace, to fully understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it happened for me, look again at the warning in verse 20. You fool, this night your soul will be required of you. I didn't really believe it, I don't think. Until I was 24 years old and my sister died. And it was taken like that. It's true. It's not just something that Jesus said. We are not promised tomorrow. And I had to ask, did I really believe in heaven? Would I really seek him again? And if I would then why am I acting like this life is as good as it gets? She's not here. She was my favorite person in the world. This can't be as good as it gets. And I doubled down, and I saw God's grace anew, and the motives of my heart began to slowly change. Keyword, slowly. I'm not saying they changed overnight. You rustle through this stuff, guys. You rustle through it. And I changed... My actions, because my heart changed and my motives changed, and I found to this day, as I invested more and more in grace-based relationships and my relationship with God, and I sought His face, I realized that life with God is actually superior, both now and in eternity. That's the best experience I could have, life with God. So by all means, if you, I, I get it, if you do not believe that there is life to come and that it's better than this life, then you should fill it up as much as you can. Fill it up. But if you believe that Jesus has died so that you might have life eternal, you've got to change the way you see the world. You can't see the world like everybody else. Now, I told you I'd come back to this. How do we actually know if we're living in abundance like the farmer? It's so hard to know in our world because it's such a different world. This doesn't seem as tangible. How do we know if we have an abundance? This can be confusing. How do I know if I'm storing up treasures on earth? Because your story might not be like my story. How do I know? Now, fortunately, Jesus gives us some additional insights right after his parable because he knows it's going to be confusing for us. So I just got to get through this really, really quick because it's kind of very important, okay? Jesus is going to help explain uh, this really key point. So stick with me. Verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore, explaining the parable, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They, they neither reap or sow nor reap. They neither have storehouses nor barns, and yet God feeds them. Oh, how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life. If then you are not able to do a small, a smallest thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet 
I tell you, even Solomon in his days was not arrayed like one of these. Flowers have great clothing is what he's saying. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all of the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure that is in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there also your heart will be. At first read, you might be like, He's telling me don't be anxious. How is that explaining the parable? Let me try to explain this to you. Look at the farmer again. Do you think the farmer was anxious? Yes. He was very anxious, which is why he's going to go to great lengths to tear down his barns and build them back up because he has incredible anxiety about the future. Now, is the farmer really anxious about the necessities of life? No. He's anxious about the luxuries of life. He's worried that he's not going to be able to spend the rest of his days eating and drinking whatever he wants and being merry. That's the luxury of life. And that's what's giving him so much stress that he's willing to tear down his barns and build up new ones. Ask me, Dave, are you anxious? Yes! I am anxious. I'm an anxious person. And if I'm honest, I've never been anxious about my next meal or if I'm going to have clothes to put on. So why am I so anxious? Because I fear that I might not have the luxuries that I've grown to love. I fear that I might not have the luxuries that my peers have, that those that I started as a CPA with might have, and it gives me great anxiety. Is that true for you? Do you have anxiety about the future? A 2012 UK anxiety survey said that 51% of those surveyed about social media had changed. They said social media had changed them negatively because they were less confident in who they were. Another study in Denmark said this. People on Facebook are 55% more likely to feel stressed about what? Their next meal? No. About the luxuries of their friends. And am I going to get to do that? Am I going to get to have that? Am I going to get to see that? Am I going to eat that kind of food? What would Jesus say? That's foolish. That kind of anxiety, that's foolish. God's going to give you everything you need to start making the kinds of investments that last forever. He's going to give you everything you need to, to, to get those kind of treasures because you don't need much to invest in relationships. You don't need much at all. You don't need silos filled with grain. You don't need lots of cash. You just need a heart that's right towards God.
So this anxiety, it's all around us. And I fear that we are missing the mark when it comes to this very important thing that Jesus says. Seeking first God's reign. Seeking first God's reign. In the patterns of your life, in your heart's motivation, are you seeking first God's reign? Let me read it again. Fear not, verse 32, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He wants to give it to you. Sell your possessions. That's not the kingdom. Give them to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasures in heaven that do not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart is the center of your decision making. And if you're anxious about accumulating unnecessary abundance of wealth, comfort, and earthly experience, you know what's reigning in your heart? It's not God. It's yourself. It's not Christ. It's me. Seek the kingdom of I. That's going to lead to me right here, right now, getting as much as I can. But seek the kingdom of God. And I'm going to be willing to invest in much longer term investment strategies. Does this mean, I just want to say this real quick. Does this mean that all anxiety Is this kind of anxiety? No. There are so many causes, legitimate medical conditions for anxiety that don't have to do with wanting wealth and comfort and even experience. So I'm not saying if you have any anxiety that somehow this is the reason. Anxiety is a real part of life. And I don't think it's going away until we go to be with the Lord. Some of us have more than others. So it's unrealistic to expect that you'll have no anxiety. But what's important here is that as we think about our anxiety and what makes us so anxious, is it the things that should make us anxious? And what Jesus is saying, you should not be anxious about stuff, about accumulating abundance. That should not make you anxious at all. In fact, I think the only way to redeem this kind of anxiety is to shift the focus. And maybe you say, I can't get rid of my anxiety, and so you get really anxious about the things of God, about the mission of God, about grace-based relationships, about telling people the gospel, about hoping that people get healing and help and redemption and restoration. That's the things we should be anxious about. And I'll tell you what, I am anxious about that. Now Jesus even then would say, have more faith because my plan will come to fruition, so you don't need to be anxious about it. But in the meantime, at least that's a better focus for my anxiety than am I going to get enough stuff to eat, drink, and be merry until I die. For where your treasure is, there too your heart will be. Even the heart that struggles with anxiety and stress. couple applications. Don't be a workaholic. Don't be a workaholic. Overworking to get the riches of the world should have a limited place in the life of the follower of Jesus. We should still work incredibly hard because God created us to work, 
but only enough to provide the necessities. Leave the future in God's hand. Don't overwork to control the future against all possible calamities or to control the future against all sort of unhealthy visions of the luxurious life. Don't be a workaholic. Two, heaven is so so good. It is. I had not been there, but I trust the word of God. And no matter how good it gets for us here and now, there is no way that it could be better than the life to come. Even when I was in my 20s, even now in this great decade of my 30s, there is no way that it will be better than life in the presence of God. I'm not going to be looking back at my Instagram when Jesus is standing in front of me. I'm not going to be like, I just got to check this real quick. Oh, Carol, I can't believe you went to that parade. Okay. So here's a haunting question. I've been wrestling with this for about seven months. Do I spend more money, time, creative energy on furthering God's mission in the world than I do on my own personal pursuit of memorable experience? For the majority of my life, I had to answer no to that question. And it was ripping me up this week. Third application. Manage your miracles well. This parable is about understanding the contrast between luxury and necessity. And we're going to sing this song at the end of the night tonight. And at the very end of it, it talks all about how good God is and what he gives us. He gives us so much good stuff. And at the end of it, we sing this little refrain. At the end of it, it says this. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. It makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. It opens prison doors and sets the captives free because I've got a river of life flowing out of me. And here's the idea of the parable. Picture the barns as silos of water and God fills them up with good blessing and goodness and he's given it to us. He doesn't want us to go build more silos for our water. He wants to let it, us to let it overflow. And as it overflows, the water runs down the side and creates new rivers of life that touch everybody in our life and our community. And it blesses them. It blesses them so much that people will walk who were once lame and the blind will see and prison doors will be set free physically and spiritually. That's what it means to manage your miracles well. Let it overflow and create rivers of life everywhere you go. Don't hoard the excess for yourself. God is the source. It's His love flowing through us and we get to be a part of it if we just stop building bigger barns. In no way am I telling you, in no way am I telling you that full harvests or money or memorable experiences in and of themselves are sinful or bad. I'm not, don't hear that tonight. Do not hear that. that is, they're not bad. If God gives you money and he gives you blessing and he gives you experiences, praise God. I'm not saying that. And I'm in no way saying that spending money on memorable experiences are incompatible with seeking grace-based relationships because I think, and it happened in my own life, that some of my best relationships formed out of unique memorable experiences and trips that I've been on. So I'm not saying that. 
And I'm in no way implying that you should never travel or see the world or try exciting things or buy your wife flowers or take her a nice meal, take her out to a nice meal. In fact, the disciples got very upset when Mary was pouring uh, expensive ointment on Jesus' uh, head. They got so upset. Why are you wasting this? And Jesus said, it's not a waste. She knows exactly what she's doing. She's preparing me for my coming death. And so there are times to spend even lavishly. Jesus would agree with that. But I want you all, myself included, to consider this. What are the motives that are driving my decisions and my pursuits of these things? And I want us to all to consider this. Who or what is the true king of my heart? And I want you to consider this. What currency do you trade in? Cash, experience, comfort, beauty. What is that thing? And finally, how do you identify the truly rich amongst you? Because it will help you to understand if you're storing up treasures on earth or treasures in heaven. Which is it? Let's pray. Father, we know this is a challenging parable. You didn't come to this world to just pat us on the back and say, great job, buddy boy. You came to challenge us to a life more full and rich and flourishing, and it's a life with you. God, help me to see who I view as the rich in the world Help it to inform my choice of currency and help me to know if that choice of currency is treasure on earth or treasure in heaven. Help me to discern my heart, the heart that's driving my motives. And God, help me to have a heart that seeks your kingdom first, that seeks you first and relationship with you first. Help that to be my currency. Help me to fill up my barns with that, with knowing you and knowing others and loving others on a base of grace. Father, give us conviction and courage to stop storing up treasures here and start storing them up in heaven. We pray that your grace would cover us We know that your forgiveness does, that you've already died for any time that we've got this wrong. You've already. So help us not to just hear your words, but to act on them, that we might bring physical and spiritual food to the hungry, healing to the sick, freedom to the captives. God, we need you to give us the courage to become rich in the way you see richness. Give us relationships that bring you glory and bring us into the presence of your Son, Jesus Christ, by whose name we pray and by whose sacrifice we stand here anew. Amen.